Warning, sexual violence will be extensively discussed within this podcast. like to welcome both of you for coming here today. So we have, are, are you doctor now? Dr. Selene Dang, is that? Yes, I am. Yes. I am Dr. Selene Dang now. Yeah, so congratulations, doctor now. And then we have a fruise as well. So I invited both of you today to talk to Defining Deviant, and we've been talking on and off the last couple of weeks about getting some information about the research that you have been working in within your sort of lab and structure there. To start, I was hoping that maybe both of you would just give us a little bit of an introduction to who you are and whatever that means to you. You can explain in terms of who you are, whether that has to do with your research or, or anything else, so the listeners know a little bit about where you your perspective is coming from. Yeah. So yeah, hi. Hi, everyone. I'm uh, now Dr. Sylvain Dang. I am a clinical psychology. I, I graduated from the PhD program in clinical psychology at the University of British Columbia. I'm currently a postdoctoral fellow also at the University of British Columbia, and I am working on my registration to become a registrant of the College of Psychologists of British Columbia. And I, my research specialization is on culture and sexuality, which we'll be talking a lot about today, just in terms of a little bit further background. I did my master's in clinical psychology as well at at UBC, and my emphasis at that point was on the behavioral neuroscience side of sexual response and sexual behavior, so I bring a little bit of that background into things as well. In terms of my personal life, I am a first-generation immigrant, came to Canada from China when I was six years old, and then since then, you know, has been immersed in, you know, I was really interested in science growing up, but then that ended going into grad school, obviously. And then my my current work, a lot of it's doing a lot of clinical work, not so much research these days. And my clinical focus is on also culture and sexuality as well as perfection. So yeah, that's a little bit about me. That's very interesting. And how about you, Afruz? Where are you at and what are you doing? So I am Afruz. I graduated with my BA in psychology from University of British Columbia. And I'm hoping to get into either clinical or counseling psychology programs. I've been at the same lab where I met Sylvain at the Perfectionism and Psychopathology Lab at UBC a few years now. Uh, My last year of my undergrad, uh, Sylvain took me on as a directed study student, and I got the chance to work on a really interesting project that we looked at sexual arousability and sexual anxiety in Chinese uh, and Euro-Caucasian women. We did some research in in that field of culture and sexuality, and now I'm focusing kind of more on perfectionism and how that impacts the therapeutic process and outcome. But as for my personal life, I was born in Vancouver, and then at nine years old, we moved to Iran. Uh, and I lived there for seven years and then we came back and that was like both of those experiences were uh, you know very culturally significant and yeah I got interested in, in sexuality research in my undergrad course and then I learned in my undergrad course of uh, psychology of human sexuality and then I uh, found out that there was a grad 
student in our lab that does uh, <laughs> research on culture and sexuality, which is Sylvain. So I was really excited and, and reached out to him and we, we started working on our project. So, and I'm also an artist and I'm working on a disability advocacy project for folks in psychology, specifically health psychology and social psychology and more broadly, I guess, just psychology and for people that at any career stages. So yeah, that's kind of a bit about me. I don't want to ramble too much. <laughs> so when you say disability and those programs, do you mean in terms of students or people who have disabilities and are trying to go through those programs and how we can better help them to be students of those programs? Yeah, just uh, it's meant to be as like a, a platform that will foster connection and help uh, students find mentors or mm-hmm. for for people at any stage. So from undergrads to professors, it's a chance for people that identify as disabled to connect and, and find mentorship and, and build community, because I think that's something that is necessary, especially mm-hmm. in the academic community. And it's not really talked about. Well, if anything, um, there's additional shame at- in that sort of setting, right? Because the expectations are so typically above and beyond what it is in normal life that to be able to meet those conditions usually assumes an ability of some sort, which is ableist in many ways, as we've talked about. Yeah, so that's that's what I'm also passionate about, <laughs> disability advocacy and art, yeah. So I'll say that coming into this conversation, I am white I always start with that because that leads a lot of what I talk about and we're going to talk about culture and we're going to talk about bias and those sorts of things and it's important for me to identify my perspective where that comes from I am a bisexual woman so in terms of identity that comes into it a little bit at play but I will say and I'm bringing these facts up because as a sexuality researcher really focusing on forensics and sexuality in the last 15 years most of the research and a lot of the research is just on white, relatively affluent people, right? And that's what we see with a lot of the research we do, the weird acronym, right? That we have a lot of our research findings is group-based and it's based on individuals that are not necessarily representative of sexuality, which ding, ding, ding is everyone in one way or another, but that's not the information we necessarily have. And I was really excited to see the research and, and Afruz and I talk personally as well. Like I love the research that is going on in this look at how sexuality has just many facets. It's not as simple as there's sexual function or dysfunction because everybody sort of approaches it in different ways. So what's, you know, yuck and yum to one person, again, different yuck and yum to another person. So I'm really left with wondering how your findings fit into this, how culture fits into this, what that can teach me as a clinician, as a human, in how to more appropriately and more inclusively have clients and and have conversations and all those sorts of things. So in terms of background, I'm wondering whether you could maybe give me a little bit of information about what you know of the research in terms of cultural differences Um, What are maybe some misconceptions I even have coming into this or people have coming into these conversations that would be helpful to know? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So before I say anything else, I also just want to acknowledge the fact that our research is going to be limited in talking about experiences of primarily cisgender folks. And we'll be talking about um, experiences that are going to, like, we'll talk about some caveats and some some layers and some greater representation of 
diversity in a little later on, but primarily a lot of what we talk about also be from a from like a heteronormative perspective, mm -hmm. unfortunately as well. So I also want to make sure that's you know made clear as well as we as we dive into some of this work. But yeah, like absolutely. In terms of the like, perhaps I'll talk about some misconceptions first, and then I'll talk about some of the specific findings or existing findings within the existing literature. But yeah, for common misconceptions, I think it basically comes down to two rough types of misconceptions, which I've encountered. One type of misconception is the assumption that everybody is the same regardless of culture. And mm -hmm. so here what we see is that we, it's easy for us, and by us, I don't mean necessarily just those of us living in our Western culture, but I think it's easy for people in general to assume that other people have similar experiences, have similar mm -hmm. perspectives, and live in similar environments, in similar social contexts as, as everyone else. And yeah. so therefore, sometimes we really fail to recognize, or it's hard for us to recognize, or we are biased to not recognize some of the really different, you know, developmental, some of the really different environmental circumstances, and, and sort of more specifically, the sociocultural circumstances that can really influence something like sexuality and sexual mm -hmm desires and interests and behaviors and all those things. The other big misconception that I tend to see is assuming that that people are so different that there cannot be any common humanity that's drawn between different groups. So mm -hmm. for example, believing that people of a different culture have such a different experience that nothing we learn about sex within one particular cultural context could apply. And I think that's also a problem because one, it's not true, right? There <laughs> is a lot of shared common humanity, shared biological, physiological factors, if you will, as well as the fact that when, if we do see other people who look different from us, who come from a different sort of, you know, belief background, who come from a different part of the world or, or speak a different language as so alien to our own experience, it really can create a lot of problems where we start seeing other cultures as a problem as opposed to, you know, seeing, seeing in a more layered way. And one specific misconception within this as well that, that I think maybe we'll talk a little bit more about later is the misconception that because we see a difference between, for example, the Western Canadian context and a different cultural context, that that difference must be the result of something odd going on in that right. other culture. And again, that, that, that othering experience. I think that's a common misconception as well. So it's almost the assumption that the basis of this research literature we're talking about are these the, the kind of Western areas that we just assume. Like, yeah, like, like this assumption that there's a, like, there's a normness to the Western cultural context. Perhaps is that what you totally lost it. Keep going. I'm sure it'll come back to me. <laughs> no worries. Yeah. But like, yeah, just, just in general, from that perspective, yeah. Like I think, you know, within the literature, I mean, the literature is pretty good about, you know, not being explicitly racist or things like oh, that. I know but, what I was thinking yeah. that it, yes. it makes the assumption that this is the baseline, right? That, exactly. Exactly. That exactly. if anything is, is, variation from that baseline essentially off that scale we assume that it is bad or that it has right. a negative connotation exactly. to it exactly exactly and and like you know add you know a negative connotation that there's something wrong it's a pathology we see layers of that or just add a more I don't know, benign level, I suppose, you, it might even just be the assumption that it's like, okay, you know, the Western white, if you will, norm is the, 
is the control group and everyone else is like a comparison group. And again, kind of that same issue comes up in sort of different flavors. Yes, absolutely. One interesting thing that we talked about was, you know, just going back to the Western lens of like the baseline. I'm also queer. So when I, when I first came out to my family, it was kind of like this thing where my dad was like, oh, well, do you want, like, does Afros want me to like, I can help her with her surgery, you know? And I'm like, what? Surgery? And I realized, oh, okay. Like he thinks I'm probably trans and Mm. want surgery. And like the issue is like what I'm struggling with is like my gender. So I can't be attracted to another woman if I'm, you know, also a woman. So that also was an interesting thing that happened for me that I'm like, okay, gender is so much like trans issues and like gender or non-binary stuff is so much more, I guess, controversial here compared to maybe some places that it's more culturally not so much accepted, but there's also, they like see it as, as a mental illness which like the cure is surgery, which is problematic in its own sense, but something like being gay or being queer is so frowned upon in in cultures like that. But with gender, there's like a more open approach to it because the culture, there's a solution for that issue, Mm. again, in quotes. In terms of, I get why you have all the quotations and trying to manage yeah. the conversation of what they're saying versus what you're saying and all of that. Yeah, yeah that, like it's not a mental illness. Like it's not like it is, you're perfect the way you are. It's culture that kind of defines that, you know? Well, and it's a trajectory that we've seen even through the DSM. If we take the smaller lens of being trans, essentially gender dysphoria is currently in the DSM. Being gay was previously in the DSM until the third version of, of homosexuality, right? that it has tapered off across time and I hope and I expect to see gender dysphoria change in the same way because I am one of those supporters that we should not be diagnosing these individuals with a mental disorder when it's identity focused. Is there gray areas where there's individuals who have confusion and maybe surgery and there's always other questions? Sure, but you know that's an identity. You can't take that away from them. That made me think of that. In terms of some of the aspects you're talking about in in that literature and maybe even what you guys were seeing and what made you interested in is what sort of stigma or sexual behavior differences did you think that there would be or was there some indication there could be based on the literature in these groups? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So, so yeah, with all of those caveats about understanding the limitations of the existing literature mm-hmm. in mind, one of the, what made me interested in doing this line of research is a number of studies that were conducted sort of between the mid 1990s to the early two, like through to the early 2000s, which essentially showed that, and this is primarily looking at like university samples, self-report. But what they generally found is that East Asian and Chinese men and women typically report lower levels of things like sexual interest, sexual Mm -hmm. desire, lower levels of sexual activity, and things like lower or older age before first time they engage in sexual intercourse. And just overall, just, you know, on average, right, on average. Um, within a, within these really broad groups, lower levels of sexual behavior and sexual mm-hmm. arousal or like excitation, things along those right. lines. And, and and like that's what kind of 
what I really wanted to understand is because although the literature has done like a reasonably good job of characterizing this difference or just showing us what this mean between group comparison difference is, it didn't really go a lot into explaining why these differences might right. be at play, right? Whether that's what sort of, you know, psychophysiological mechanisms might be involved, what specific cultural factors might be involved. Like the, the mm-hmm. literature traditionally has been like, oh, it's, you know, probably cultural. And there's been some measures suggesting it is more cultural than, you know, genetic, let's say. They were able to, you know, do some, a little bit more like sort of, you know, sophisticated correlations just to show like measures. We it's mostly a cultural difference. And then there's, you know, some discussion about, you know, the like nature of Chinese cultural history around sexuality, usually not so much discussion about the Western cultural context. Um, It's kind of going back to what I was saying earlier. And then they, and that's kind of what the literature was left at. Not because I think the researchers were like, were like, you know, not doing their jobs properly, but just because that's just, you know, as much research as they got to, right? And so in terms of the current study, what I was really interested in is understanding a bit more sort of in a fleshed out way, what are some cultural factors that might be involved mm-hmm. and also more specifically you know what are some aspects of sexuality that are the most affected so things like sexual response versus sexual behavior you know how do we best understand the nature of these differences are we talking about you know like is it that one group is more has more like sexual dysfunctions or is it that one group has hypersexuality or right or is it people are making different choices or because it's you know people don't have as many available partners or like there, there's so many ways of understanding why there might be a difference there and that's kind of essentially what the study was aimed at figuring out so were there I know when I was planning my dissertation um I was doing something I really enjoyed doing and I'd spent a lot of time in I know a lot of people end their dissertation and like don't love it anymore but I loved mine so I that was good. But in terms of, I know that there was sort of holes that I was seeing there and relationships I expected to be there. And, you know, that's sort of how we end up there. So what were you expecting to be behind it? Or what were you hypothesizing would be behind some of these mean differences that we're seeing? Heading into the project, we were hoping to use one pretty well supported model of the regulation of sexual response and sexual behaviors in primarily Western samples, which is the dual control model. And what the dual control model talks about is the idea that there is basically two rough approximate you know, pathways in which human sexuality is, or human sexual response is controlled within our bodies and our, and our brains. And so there is this excitatory pathway, which is kind of like the, uh, the, the gas pedal, if you will, that activation of this pathway increases the chances of sexual behavior, increases the chances of sexual excitement. And then there's an inhibitory pathway, which is like the, the brake pedal, um, which essentially says activation of this pathway suppresses sexual behavior, suppresses mm-hmm. the likelihood of a sexual response and essentially shifts the person's attention to something else, not sexual related, right? So um, what's getting you going and what's killing your drive sometimes. Exactly, so, right? Okay. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And the idea being that, you know, sexual difficulties, you know, if, if we're looking at it from like a clinical perspective or just variability in how much sex and how much sexual excitement someone experiences, it could be a function of different levels of excitation could also be a function of different levels of inhibition and of course some combination of both right before we headed into 
the before we headed into my dissertation research, we had done some qualitative studies looking at how Chinese men and women talked about their own experiences of sexual desire. And from those narratives, I at least really expected that sexual inhibition would be the primary driver of the bus, if you will, around any of these cultural differences. That Chinese culture in the present day has more of a sexual, you know, restrictive kind of bent than, than mainstream Western culture does. And then historically, we can talk a little bit about later. But, but in the present day, that's kind of, you know, how the participants in our qualitative research kind of characterize it as well. And so we had expected that there would be a sort of powerful inhibitory effect of some of these cultural factors and cultural differences. And this was surprising. I guess I can just get into yeah. the results. So what did you find? <laughs> yeah. So what we found was that interestingly, in men, we actually did indeed find that sexual inhibition on average, again, mean comparison between two groups, right. on average higher in the Chinese men than the white men in our sample. Whereas in the women, what we actually found is that the Chinese women, on average, reported lower levels of sexual excitation than, than their Euro-Caucasian peers. And that was the main differences. And then in the women, the sexual inhibition levels were actually quite comparable, or like quite similar between the two groups. And then in the men, the level of sexual excitation, as reported, were quite similar between the groups. So we actually found an interaction effect between gender and which of these two pathways seemed more different. So, so if I'm understanding correctly, the men then, it was more of, and maybe I'm, I'm simplifying this too much, the men sort of seem to have more of the inhibition psychological component maybe going on versus, and I don't know if it's kind of splits into that, but like, because it seems like excitation is more of like drive for sex versus the components that might like shut it down. Does that make sense? Sort of where I'm going with that of, does it seem to be a differentiation between men and women in terms of psychological versus biological components? Or is this all sort of psychological indicators? I'm just wondering what the actual measures were in terms of excitation right, and inhibition. Yeah. Great. Yeah, great question. Yeah, so so very simple methodology. These are all yeah. self-report questionnaires. And yeah. so, so at ultimately it's getting at, I mean, if you want to be very behaviorist about it, what we're getting at is what are people's behavioral responses when we put a standardized questionnaire in front of them. But but what like both of these measures are trying to tap into. I would say something more on the psychological end. Okay. Like, you know, like we didn't measure genital responses right. or like any sort of physiological activation or anything along those lines. So I would say, you know, both of these were kind of in that airy fairy psychology end, as opposed no, to- No, that's perfect. Biology and yeah, yeah. That, that's, it makes for a nicer comparison, right? Because yeah, I, I, yeah, that's what I was wondering is like, is one more biological than the other? And then that's an issue. But if they're both sort of that psychological component, it's great because then those are, you know, very- very differing reasons maybe for what's going on there. And I guess before maybe I'll ask you to interpret those findings or give us more of a discussion on it. Were there any findings you didn't expect or information that came through that was modified the narrative that you were constructing for your dissertation or you had to, to make any corners or was it all sort of the way you expected? Right, right. Well, yeah, like, I mean, this, this gender by ethnicity interaction was definitely something which we didn't expect. I mean, I had to shift my narrative. Um, <laughs> yeah. One of my supervisors, Dr. Lori Brado, who's an immense expert She's great. in the field yeah. of sexuality, I think she expected the excitation to play 
a bigger role. So, so I, was, I guess she was right. That was wrong, which is <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and and then the, the other piece was that one of my other hypotheses going into the study was I wondered if different norms in how people relate interpersonally to each other between cultures might have had an impact. And so we looked at attachment style and we looked at you know, self-control, which is oftentimes, you know, at that, that's a variable they talk a lot about in cultural psychology, about how someone, you know, develops a sense of agency and how they relate right. to other people in their lives and things like that. And then we also talk about perfectionism, which we don't have time to get into too much today, but like, you know, that's actually a really interpersonally driven um, experience as well. And that Fruz should probably speak a little bit more about the specific findings since she definitely helped out of tongue with that research. But one of the things that I found surprising was that some of the patterns in this area wasn't as clear as I had thought. I thought mm. that something like there might be big differences in attachment style between cultural groups. But in the end, we did find some significant findings, which are interesting, which again, I hope that Bruce will talk about. But at the end of the day, the, the size of these effects did not seem at all comparable to the really big effect sizes that we saw in the actual core sexuality variables right. between ethnicities. So, so that was pretty surprising for me. So Afruz, I know we've talked a little bit about attachment and that's an area that you're really interested in research. And, and I myself, as years have gone on, have become much more interested in it because I think as a clinician, you end up just understanding that there's just a lot going on for people there. And that, you know, our history of relationships almost always plays a role in our current relationships in some way or another. So being aware of those patterns, being able to have insight on them, you know, stop your own reactions when you're not reacting to the person in front of you, but instead of previous situation, all of those sorts of things. How does that fit into sexuality and the culture differences that we're talking about? Yeah, attachment plays such a huge role in everything that we do. And the more the time goes and the more I read, the more I it, it becomes more evident to me that wow, like this is this is massive. So yeah, I mean, in in the research that we looked at, we looked at primarily women, again, undergraduate samples, and we found that the women that had more likelihood of being anxiously attached uh, actually had higher levels of sexual anxiety. And people that reported a more independent style of self-control, which again, is kind of like the way that you perceive yourself in relation to others, you're more you're more likely to emphasize your own internal wants and needs and goals and values and, and such in comparison to kind of defining it based on your interpersonal relationships. So we found that that people that had more anxious attachment styles would report higher sexual anxiety. But even if, if when we controlled for those, the Chinese women were still reporting higher sexual anxiety and lower arousability because those are the sexual functioning measures we looked at. We looked at mm. how, how aroused they would feel in response to a number of sexual situations and also how sexually anxious they would feel in those same situations. So is this the uh, same, same data set? Like these are the same participants? What I was wondering about the linkage is like, is the data you're talking about linked to the data Sylvain is talking about in terms of what I was going to ask was, how does that pair with the findings you had in terms of the exhibition and inhibition with the sexual anxiety? Do you think that that plays a role at all? Yeah. So with the people that had the women that reported the sexual anxiety, they were more likely to be anxiously attached. Right. But 
but the sexual anxiety and the self-control aspect that we talked about they weren't that Mm. closely linked at all like they didn't we didn't find any significant associations between the two and also between kind of like the sexual arousability and the self-control we did find a link but because when we controlled for those like there was still a link between the the outcome variables like the sexual functioning Mm -hmm. and the Chinese women so we're like okay this this is a little messy so we kind of left out the self-control piece but there was a there was a strong link how you think or either of you to answer really with these findings it's just making things pop up in my head because a lot of I think a lot of what all of us do in sexuality research is actually dealing with stigma and a lot of it is the reactions to things and how that impacts people versus the normality of the actual behavior and the range of behavior which is again within human responses it's a lot of this is about interpersonal and about stigma and I'm wondering what you both think about how stigma plays a role here and how that might be maybe playing into some of the findings that you saw. I can speak a bit to your previous question first perhaps about the the relation between some of these sexual the sexual anxiety measure perhaps Mm with some of the sexual inhibition kind of pieces Mm -hmm. and I mean this is really getting into the like nitty-gritty of it so you know maybe we can link my dissertation (laughs) in the comments or something absolutely but um, but but, I mean what we see actually is that so I mean what we found in our sample at least I'm not going to say this is true all for all time or that there wasn't necessarily this the thought that this is going to be representative of the entire you know, like all the people might ever be interested in. But what we found was actually that separate um, questionnaire for sexual inhibition and a, and a separate questionnaire for sexual anxiety. And what we actually did find was that, if I remember correctly, sexual anxiety was actually higher in the Chinese women, but sexual inhibition were about the same between the two ethnic groups. Part of it comes down to how people responded to specific things. Part of it is some some of it might just be idiosyncrasies around some of the questionnaires. And then other pieces might also be that like anxiety is one path towards sexual inhibition, but sexual inhibition could also be for all kinds of other reasons, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So for example, one of the things, um, one of the things, for example, stigma, as you're mentioning, could drive is one of the things a stigma can increase level of anxiety, right? If, If one thinks that what one is doing is a social taboo is going to be inappropriate if they're if people are, know about it they'll be humiliated and shunned and punished of course there's going to be a lot more anxiety in that context right but at the same time social stigma might also be a place where it means that the person can find other you know emotional cognitive pathways towards inhibition that doesn't necessarily involve anxiety right so Mm -hmm. for example the person might devalue certain goals or certain experiences which might again speak to sort of that that difference in, in, in level of excitation perhaps right or perhaps something like stigma you know one of the things that this wasn't what we looked at in our current study but you know one of the findings out there is that when people talk about or when, when people were to talk about how their parents communicated to them about mm. sex and sexuality, one of the patterns we see among East Asian folks is that a lot of times they report very little communication at all, right? And like people 
in a Canadian context and an American context, et cetera, also report that experience a lot as well, right? And one of the things with that experience is that, you know, yes, on some level, it can be really difficult for a child growing up if they hear lots of sex negative messages, like sex is bad, sex is dirty, it's dangerous, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Those can cause problems, right? But also if a child hears nothing about sex or, you know, the, you know, if they ask or say something sexual and the parent turns away or just brushes it off or seems kind of uncomfortable but doesn't talk about it, I mean, that tell that could tell the child that you know, this topic is so dangerous and right. so taboo that it's not even the parents are not even capable of issuing a verbal condemnation of that. And, you know, again, one of those things that can promote a lot of anxiety, a lot of shame, etc. But it can also, in addition, do something like where the child doesn't prioritize or value or, have, or the child doesn't have the opportunity to explore her experiences of sexual desire and arousal and even think about what they want or what they might not want and things like that, right? Absolutely. And so, I mean, just on a clinical level, I've seen that, again, for people of all ethnicities and backgrounds, and but perhaps there's a cultural difference in how frequent those experiences are, right? So, mm-hmm. To add on to that, what our research, we, we focused on sexual anxiety and arousability and attachment, anxious attachment and self-control. We didn't look at inhibition and excitation. But yeah, just to go back to what Sylvain was saying about the, the messaging that we're exposed to as we're, we're growing up, either uh, the culture, cultural messages or the norms or the family relationships or our family's perspective towards sex and sexuality and sexual health and all of these things, those all form our reality and how we mm-hmm. relate to uh, sexuality and how much we internalize the shame and I guess with more shame, there comes more anxiety. Yeah, it's interesting to to look at and how how a lot of those things, like acculturation to mainstream Western culture, will can help with a lot of those desire or arousability. I'm not sure if those were the exact variables that they looked at, but I guess Sylvain, you can you can talk more about that uh, about acculturation. But we didn't we didn't look at acculturation in our study, but that is something that we do see in yeah. the literature. That, yeah. I would love to hear more about that, Sylvain, just because I'm left here wondering, as you're saying that, Afruz, is, is obviously as uh, people with intersectional identities, like I'm never pushing someone to take on a certain style of thinking or, or way of being, right? Like I want my client to come in as who they are. But you're also saying that, or, or maybe the way I just understood is perhaps that acculturation in certain ways has benefits to certain things, how does that fit into this in terms of practically, clinically? Because I I love research, I do, but at the end of the day, I'm very much about lived experience and I'm a clinician at heart where I'm like, what does this mean for the actual people? And like, what can we do with it? How does it help people? So I'm wondering if you could maybe give me a little bit of that information and as clinicians, how how maybe you've dealt with situations or situations you've seen and, and acted in different ways, depending on those things, just to clarify that. Yeah, absolutely. And and I would say, you know, if there's anything that really helped me shift my perspective on kind of what we were saying earlier about you know, othering the other culture and seeing it as the problem, it is the acculturation findings, actually. And, and we had a paper out in the Canadian Journal of Human Sexuality that dives into this in some detail. But essentially what we found, I mean, the 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 narrative in the literature has traditionally been that 
if we look at a group of East Asian men or East Asian women, and then we look at acculturation and the common, the acculturation scale used in East Asian samples tends to be the Vancouver index of acculturation created by Andrew Ryder et al. Um, and, and, and it's a good instrument. There's, you know, like I like it, I obviously used it in my research. And, and it breaks down acculturation into two main facets or sub, sub scales. Okay. Um, the first one being mainstream acculturation, which is okay. essentially how acculturated you are to Canada because the scale was developed in Vancouver. Right. And then and then heritage acculturation, which is how acculturated or how attached you are to the culture of your ancestors. In this case, I suppose Chinese culture or some okay. variable, variation thereof, right? And so the traditional narrative has been that when people have higher levels of mainstream acculturation, like when, when Chinese people living in Vancouver or living in Canada or the U.S., report higher levels of mainstream acculturation that is associated with a higher level of sexual response, a greater level of well, greater frequency of sexual activities, more permissive and less restrictive sexual attitudes, and like all kinds of things like that. And 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 that's well supported by the research. That is indeed what we find and we consistently find that that correlation. Now a lot of papers either implicitly or at times explicitly will then extrapolate that to say that a connection with Chinese culture is then associated with problems in these areas. And, and this is where this is this is a very key distinction, right? Because, mm -hmm. because the idea that mainstream acculturation is correlated with more sexual permissiveness and less sexual restrictiveness does not automatically imply that higher heritage acculturation is associated with more restrictive and less. I was gonna ask you, could the right? both of those not be high? Exactly, exactly. So exactly, right? People can be high on both or low on both. And if you look at the, the sort of very model of acculturation, we look at things like, you know, if you're just high on mainstream, then that's like assimilation. If you're just high on heritage, I believe that I forget what that's called, but but essentially you're more attached to your your like heritage culture. If you are high on both, then that's kind of like seen as an integration. And then if you're low on both, that's seen as an alienation. You're kind of, you don't feel like you fit in with either culture, right? And first off is what we find just at when Ryder et al. made his instrument, these two were seen as orthogonal, right? They're, they're right. not correlated at all. They're, you know, they're, they're like separate ideas. And as the years have gone on, my experience has been the, over time, these two factors have become more and more positively correlated. So in our sample, what we found is that people were, were for the most part, and, and these were the Chinese men and the Chinese women, were either high on both or low on both. So what we really see is a distinction between that integration versus alienation kind of experience, as opposed to perhaps, you know, back in the 90s when they made this room, the acculturation landscape was perhaps a bit more different. And Clinically makes sense, right? Like in my head, I'm saying to myself, well, yes, because if someone is like very attached to their culture, they're very, you know, accepting of that. They love what they're doing. They're also attached to Canada. They love what they're doing. Yeah, that makes sense to me. It, it, but you're right. It gets, there's this juxtaposition in the research. And I see it as well, where those things are treated as separate, right? Like when mm -hmm. we say acculturation, typically people assume that means lowering the other one. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sure. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And this becomes actually quite important in our, in our research here is because, well, I mean, there, uh, there's so many ways I've gone for like, for like, 
days and days and days about that. But, <laughs> but okay, but, but like, but like in the context of, of like our research, right? What we found is that that same association with more sexual permissiveness with mainstream acculturation, but at the sort of zero order baseline correlation level, we found that heritage acculturation was also positively associated with more sexual permissiveness and less sexual restrictiveness. And that makes sense, right? Because it's it, there's this shared association with, with, with mainstream acculturation, perhaps. So in some ways, that was surprising. Now, once we you know split this apart in like a multiple, multiple regression, what we find is that, again, the mainstream acculturation seems to be the primary driver of the bus in terms of it's the unique predictor of more sexual permissiveness and less sexual restrictiveness. But it's not like that, that heritage acculturation then suddenly became a negative predictor. It's anything just like a neutral shift, like covariate with mainstream acculturation. So, so basically, your heritage acculturation level doesn't really seem to have a much of an impact on the level of you know how much sexual activity and how sexually aroused yeah. one gets, but mainstream acculturation does seem to enhance things, which suggests that what's really going on is is less about necessarily that Chinese culture is somehow so bad around sexuality or so restricted on sexuality, but rather that there is something uniquely sexually permissivizing, if you will, about Western culture that that some bicultural participants are are experiencing, which I think is a like, you know, it's not necessarily so different than what people might expect, but it adds certainly more layers and certainly affects how we should be thinking about these things, right? I think it also introduces those layers of nuance too, where it's easy for people to lose some of what's being said because they go for sort of the highlight. These things are different mm -hmm. or they're, they're different in these ways. And then they exactly. lose all exactly. of these things we're talking about here, mm -hmm. which are backgrounds to those things, right? That set it up. How do you think that this information can help clinicians in terms of people coming in with intersectional identities, people coming in with these sort of issues? Like how can we apply the research or where do you see it going sort of is my question. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Well, one of the things that, you know, just in the, in the discussion of intersectionalities, one thing that I should caveat my research, which is supposed <laughs> to be caveating all this literature, is that for the acculturation study uh, analyses, we actually did split participants up by sexual orientation because we were specifically interested in whether, like, you know, there is quite a lot of homophobia and just anti-sexual orientation diversity in a lot of East Asian cultural contexts, unfortunately. And what we found was that for heterosexual individuals and for asexual individuals, that this kind of previous pattern I was describing held true, but for bisexual and same-sex oriented folks, what we found was that heritage cultivation was at times associated with more sexual difficulties, more uh, restrictiveness, and not sex positive experiences, perhaps, if you will. And, and we interpret that to mean, again, like, I mean, that speaks to the complexity of these intersectionalities, right? I mean, on one hand, I think it would be a huge mistake to say XYZ culture is bad because, you know, X, because it has XYZ beliefs that are different from ours. And at the same time, it would also be a mistake to say that the abyss of the culture is universally good and has no problems, right? But yeah, like um, like like I was saying, so like you know, for example, this social issue of how how the well-being and rights and mm. sexual freedoms of 
of individuals who are not heterosexual in East Asian cultures are, you know, is navigated, that's an enormously, you know, challenging part of this field right now, right? And, and, yeah. and that's in, as in it's, a, it's a big issue on a societal level for, for the countries that, that we're talking about here, right? But yeah, no, Afuz, I'm sure you have some, some thoughts on this as well. Yeah, I'd love to hear them, Afuz. Yeah, for sure. I mean, for me, it was just because I spent, you know, a considerable amount of time living in Iran during my teen years, I was kind of, I guess, maybe this could also speak to how much a culture centers sex and sexuality. Mm -hmm. Like, for example, here, you know, look at our advertising, like, look at the billboard like sex sells like there's this such it, it takes even though there's a lot of like shame and shame yeah exactly even though we still have absence yeah. of sex ed but still it's like sexuality right? is everywhere or at least physical yeah. sexuality yeah sexuality sexualization is, is the term yes that, that, that would be a, yeah. a better term there we go yeah. yeah exactly so like sexualization is everywhere but like for me like growing up there I was just kind of like oh, no, I can't, I can't be like anything but straight. I just kind of like assumed I was straight until I was 22. And then, you know, in school and like taking human sexuality, taking like gender studies courses, I'm like, oh, well, I don't have to be either like gay or straight. I can be like somewhere in the middle and like shift and like all that. And just from like, I don't know, from like a therapy perspective, it's so hard to find well, now it's, it's getting better, but it, it was really hard to find queer therapists of color, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and, and for Absolutely. me and my experience, you know, like so, so many people can't understand it. Like if I go to uh, a, a therapist with my cultural background, but they're not queer, right. I don't know if they're homophobic. Like, I don't know if they understand my experience, but, you know, thankfully I have a queer <laughs> Persian therapist, but yeah, I mean, it, it's really hard when you're kind of when you're grown up in a culture where uh sex and sexuality is kind of like repressed and repressed and repressed and it's like okay where it, it needs the space to kind of be but but if you're repressing it you're kind of just assuming that it's not there and I know so many people that are closeted but they they choose to you know have a have a life with a wife and kids and you know live their heterosexual life and and that's fine you know but it it just goes to the culture and how repressive it is and how even even if they're living here they're still repressing that they're still they're still repressing that desire even though they're they've somewhat have show of acculturation or, or show based on my experience you can see that they're somewhat acculturated but they still repress like the the sexuality side but you know talking about like queer stuff and like culture is it's so much more complicated <laughs> i think cuz yeah, yeah there's like a whole lot of shame and like repression that comes with that too and you know with like my background or like Sylvain's cultural background um like you mentioned but i i i do think that it's it's nice to kind of have the space to to be able to explore, to have the representation, you know, Mm. I mean, we still don't have enough representation, but it's it's still nice to see that you can be, that that queer doesn't only mean like white and queer or like able-bodied and queer, like queer Mm -hmm. can come in all different forms. And I, I, I appreciate that, you know, 
being here, uh, moving back here allowed me to explore that and kind of be really comfortable with it. Whereas I don't know where I would have been if I was still living there. Yeah, really, really good point of fruits. And, and just to dovetail off of what you said about how, you know, you don't have to pick either or when it comes to like identities and sexual orientation. And that's kind of the same idea, I think, what a lot of the, the current findings suggest when it comes to actual acculturation and mm. cultural identities as well, right? Kind of what you said as well, Kristen, earlier about how, you know, when we talk about mainstream acculturation, that's often the implicit assumption is lowering what the person's attachment to, attachment, maybe not the best word easier, but connections or affiliation with, with their heritage culture. And we get into this from the dissertation, there's a lot of you know, issues with, with that kind of framework as well. But really what, what this study shows is that like, you know, there is a lot of different paths towards a cultural identity or a cultural sort of self-concept that can work for someone. Right. Part of being a clinician is going to be about, you know, really collaborating with the patient and helping them bringing in their expertise as their person with their own lived experience and us bringing in our expertise as a listener, as a therapist, as a, as a psychologist, and to, to essentially help, you know, reach some sort of shared understanding about, you know, what will work what work best for this person, right? What does this mm -hmm. person want? How do they, how do they see themselves? How do they want to be able to see themselves? What's going to be most effective for them in navigating the, the real world that they live in? Clinicians need to be careful, especially as we're talking about this research and, and that tendency for the baseline, right? That we don't extend the writing reflex of we think we know what's best for the client exactly. and exactly. our programs still lack sexuality training. Our programs mm -hmm. lack you know, cultural training, let's be real. Exactly. It's, we exactly. get like, exactly. we get a, a class on it, right? So it's, mm -hmm. yeah, there's a lot to do. And a lot of it's being open to who your client is in my experience and accepting exactly. them in whatever spectrum or identity they are coming with, because that's the only way that they're going to feel seen. And that's ultimately is what everybody's looking for is to be seen. Exactly. Exactly. And, and I mean, like, just as a specific example of this, right? Like if, if we have like a client come in and they report a lower level of sexual activity and perhaps even a lower level of sexual response than, you know, perhaps what we might expect, you know, how do we understand that, right? Like, is that a pathology? Is that a dysfunction? Is that a dysfunction? Should we diagnose them? Should we treat this as a problem? Or should we understand this as differences in perhaps maybe the person has a more of an asexual orientation, or perhaps they have a lower level of sex drive, if you will, but that works for them and that's yeah. fine for them and and it's more about how to fit that into you know expectations by their partner or by society about how sexual they should be like it, it just in the in this research we tried various ways to tease that apart at the sort of nomothetic sort of broad mm -hmm. population large sample level but really it comes down to as you're saying crystal right like really being attuned with your patient and trying to understand what it is that's going to best serve them and and really following their lead sort of what's best served them and I, I mean even if we look at the the like dsm right like you know lots and lots of problems with the dsm but it does have that distress and impairment kind of yeah. criteria right and and it gets into some detail about how like in when in the sexual dysfunction it's not just their partner wants more sex and this person doesn't want to but they're really the person themselves have to be distressed by yes. the label and the diagnosis or, or you know kind of go down that route so so yeah like a lot of it's going to be very individual and and you know that's yeah that's the point that's why people don't necessarily get better from reading a, like a self-help book or, or yeah. just etc right like that's why they need that individualized psychotherapy and sometimes it's not about 
fixing the person's sexuality or sexual response or anything like that, but it's about, you know, just helping them navigate all these layers that we're talking about. And right? integrating, because, right? Integrating a lot of that into their life in an open way. Because a, a lot of what I deal with anyway is not even the end once the individuals have somewhat integrated is dealing with the outcomes of living their life truly, right? Is a lot of it as well. But no, your research is is so well received and I'm so excited to see sexuality growing like in the last 15 years even to see what's changed and, and how much is going on. I'm incredibly thankful that we have students coming up and, and people such as yourselves that are willing to take on this research even though it can be hard to explain and even more difficult to do. But it's needed and these conversations are needed openness from clinicians are needed for all of our clients and for all of us as well we're all humans and, and sexuality is part of that so i just wanted to thank you both for coming here today and having these open discussions with me they're not always easy but i think it is how we move the world forward to be more inclusive absolutely thank you for having us on is, is it possible for me to maybe give two parting thoughts oh yes absolutely yeah yeah so so two parting thoughts one is aimed at so my first thought is aimed at um at clinicians at mm -hmm. researchers and at, at anyone else who's consuming this literature and trying to understand these yeah. phenomena from like a more western kind of lens right mm -hmm. and what i'll say is that you know like we've been talking about different cultures and chinese people and east asian people etc cetera, etc cetera, but really remember that this research that we've done at least right is in people who were living in Vancouver at the time the right. study was done, right? So we right. were so everything we're talking about here is actually about our culture, right? This is not about Chinese culture and Confucianism and neo-Confucianism and blah 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 blah. It's about how we as a people right here and right now live with each other and help mm -hmm. each other live the best that we can as a group that's come from all over the world, right? And, and you know, we can certainly get into, you know, the whole call, like colonialism and how you know, we're all colonizers here under the indigenous people, et cetera. But at the end of the day, you know, we're all living together in this, whether it's like a you know, patchwork quilt or a melting pot or whatever analogy you like, this is about our country. This is about Vancouver, this is about Canada, this is about, you know, the, the West, if you will, but this is about us, right? It's mm -hmm. not about them, it's about us. And Absolutely. Then, yeah, and, and, then, and then my other takeaway is for folks who are bicultural, right? and you know, I can really only speak for the bicultural Chinese-Canadian experience, but perhaps this is applicable for Mumbai as well, is this idea that, you know, we come from um, two or more, you know, very, very long, big, broad, powerful, if you will, cultural traditions, right? And, and we are inheritors of both, right? In terms of like me as a Chinese person who was born in China and living in Canada, like the, the Chinese cultural history and the Canadian cultural history has it both has an enormous impact on me, whether I like it or not, right? And so it is both our privilege and our responsibility to find some way of integrating, right? I'm a big integrationist. So let's find some way of integrating these cultural histories and these perspectives, both the the positive things about these cultural traditions, as well as some of the not so positive things about these cultural traditions. How do we fit them together into something that works for us and the people we care about and our communities mm -hmm. and our society? 
now, right? That's that's kind of my two takeaways. That no, I think, that we I think those are our great takeaway points because at the end of the day, I think um, the reason I do this, you do this, if Ruth does this, any most people I know that I deal with is because they want to improve people's well-being, whatever that looks like, right? And they want to uh, feel comfortable in and and by understanding these things and by being willing to dive into them and challenge our own assumptions, challenge our own biases, that can only help us improve the well-being of our clients, our other people, and ourselves ultimately. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a goal that all of us should strive to be working yeah, towards. Absolutely. And building a better future for our children, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I don't want my son to inherit it as is, and I'm always working to get it better. And I think we all are. So we'll, we'll keep on that track, all of us. Yeah, no, I just wanted to thank you both. Uh, and thank you, Crystal, for uh, inviting us today. And yeah, it was really nice to have this conversation. And I hope that it continues, that we can continue to destigmatize <laughs> as much as we can in our own circles and our own communities. And yeah. Absolutely. I mean, like, yeah, thank you again for, for having us on, Crystal. I mean, you're doing such important work in terms of knowledge translation, getting these messages out there, shaping the discourse. I mean, it is so easy for, I just know, like as a scientist to get like, you know, into our ivory, ivory tower and obsess over the stats and the conceptualization to make this lovely paper that, you know, no one's ever going to read. And so, so yeah, no, I, I thank you so much for, for having us on and, and like, you know, I mean, at some point we should talk about the DSM. And, yes. Uh, oh, I would love to have a DSM yeah. jam session. <laughs> yeah. That would be great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I no, I it's it's so important. Knowledge translation. I had the joy of working with a social worker through much of my education, and and she was very much about on the ground, about lived experience. And the pandemic really drove me into more activism and knowledge translation, and the need for being out of that tower for myself. Anyway, I think it's a great fit for many people. It's not the fit for me. I hopefully will keep bringing that information out and translating it. And I also try to bring in the lived experience when I can, because uh, we need to be listening. The group research is great. It gives us lots of big patterns, but at the end of the day, our clients are our clients and, and that's who we're for. So yeah, we'll keep doing what we're doing and we'll talk about DSM soon then. <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks again. Yes. Thank you Thanks, both for joining Crystal. me. Have a wonderful day. All right. Take Bye. Care. Bye. Bye. If the information in this podcast has been distressing, please see the homepage for resources.